I want to talk a little bit this morning about mountaintop experiences. There's a lot of that going on in the world today. If you've been paying attention, we are beginning the third week of a, an incredible movement of the Holy Spirit at the Asbury University. What started as a, a Wednesday morning student chapel service has grown into going on three weeks of revival that has spilled over from that chapel into auditoriums on the university, into neighboring universities, into neighboring churches and People are coming from literally all over the world making the trek. Hours of travel to experience this movement of the Holy Spirit. And yes, I call it a revival, although that means different things to different people. Revivals, I believe, are not made out of the same homogenous cloth. They're, they're based on the needs, just like the gifts of the Holy Spirit to us as individuals. They're based on the needs of the people of God and the world at the moment that they occur. And so what is going on is that God's response to the prayers and pleas of his people for the presence of God to be among us, for the peace of God to dwell with us, and for us to receive because we have repented and asked for it. A real tangible presence that God is still with us and has a plan and a purpose for his church in this world today. And so our scripture from the Old Testament this morning talks about Moses and the holy mountain. It's just yet another trip to the top of Mount Sinai for Moses. In Exodus 24, as was just read to us, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses obediently set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. See, it seems that Moses, over the course of his life, made several trips to the mountaintop, called there by God to receive instruction, to commune with God, and this time to collect God's commandments for his people Israel. This particular trip was a lengthy one. It was not just a day trip to the mountain and back. No, before he left, Moses gave instructions to the elders saying, wait here for us until we come to you again. Aaron and her are going to be with you. If you have a dispute, go see them. And then scripture tells us in Exodus 24, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai 
and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people down below the people Israel. And so Moses entered the cloud and he went up onto the mountain, even higher into the cloud. And he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, it's clear that God called Moses to the mountain for a purpose. At some point, as followers of Jesus, as people who have a relationship with our Savior, at some point we are all called to the mountain. So God calls Moses to the mountain to give him the stone tablets upon which God himself, with his own hand, had written the Ten Commandments of the law. The very tablets that Moses would bring down the mountain and they would be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant as a tangible indicator, a visible sign of the permanent presence of God with his people through his written word. Now, many centuries after that event occurred on Mount Sinai, Jesus, too, is called to the mountain. In our gospel lesson from Matthew this morning, Matthew 17, we find that Jesus and his three disciples are at the top of a high mountain. And the text doesn't specifically say which mountain it was. Maybe it was Mount Haran. Maybe it was Mount Tabor. Maybe it was Mount Maron. Whichever mountain it was, some interesting things happened there. And Matthew tells us six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. So it seems that six days prior to this miraculous event, something significant had occurred. And we have to imagine what was it that happened of such magnitude, of such importance that it would be mentioned here along with the, the miraculous testimony of the transfiguration. What could have happened six days ago that so warranted inclusion in this passage of Scripture where the divinity of Jesus Christ was revealed to three of his disciples on the mountain? It must have been something really important. So if we go back in Matthew, in chapter 16, Jesus six days before this, asks his disciples these important questions. You'll recall what they are when you hear them. He asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because the people think in this time that Jesus might be John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. 
or that he might be the prophet Elijah that they have been waiting on, the, the very sign they're waiting on to tell them that the Messiah is coming. Or that he might be one of the ancient prophets like Isaiah or Moses reappearing. And it's here that Peter makes this declaration in response to those questions. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am, Peter? He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. When Jesus hears that coming out of Peter's mouth, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Simon. I'm changing your name. You are Peter. And on this rock, Peter means rock. Upon the rock of your faith, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So after this discussion, in verse 21, Jesus begins to show his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem and that there he will undergo great suffering at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and he will be killed and on the third day he will be raised from the dead. And when he said these words to them, the disciples, especially Peter, did not Understand. All he heard was that I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine your, your Lord telling you, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Aren't we all guilty of that from time to time? We set our gaze far too low. Instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus, on the divine things, we, we tend to set our sights much lower than that, setting our eyes on the current circumstances, setting our eyes on what's going on in our human condition, and we forget that there is a divine presence that will walk with us and guide us if we will just gaze on him. And so six days later, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to the top of a mountain. And it says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. You see, this is the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus becomes radiant in glory upon the mountaintop. Jesus reveals to these three disciples who are present there a, a, a look, at least partially, of his true nature, of his divinity. 
Peter and James and John and the other disciples, they had been setting their minds not on divine things, but on human things. So now Jesus is giving them a taste of the divine. And so they got to see him in his glory so that they could get a better understanding of who he is. See, before this, they'd only seen him in his humanness, in his human body. Yes, he'd been doing signs and wonders and miracles, but they'd never witnessed Jesus as glory. And after telling them just six days ago that he was going to die and be resurrected, he helped them understand what it was he was saying by allowing them a glimpse into his God nature. So Matthew says, suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Why was that necessary? That these disciples witnessed such a miraculous event. Jesus and Moses and Elijah there together in all the glory. Well, the people, if you recall, were speculating that Jesus might be Moses or Elijah reappearing. And and the disciples saw all three of them there together talking completely, dispelling the idea that Jesus is anyone but Jesus Moses and Elijah there represent the law and the prophets. So here in all their glory, they are the representatives of the law that Jesus came and fulfilled. And the prophets whose countless prophecies Jesus came and fulfilled. And now they are all meeting with Jesus, the author and finisher of the new covenant. The old way had been fulfilled by Jesus and he was bringing in the new covenant, a new way coming into place. And there Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, Lord, I'll make three houses, three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll camp here for who knows how long. This is so great. This time on the mountain, I don't ever want to come down. All that stuff in the valley, forget about that. This is the place we need to be, Jesus. I can't blame Peter for his, his enthusiasm. I, you know, I have been watching this revival as it's unfolded and all the testimonies and videos. And you get a real sense that the movement of the spirit is not only real, but it's expansive. It's happening and it will happen here. It happened at convening conference of the Global Methodist Church. It happened before that when we met at the Texas Annual Conference and the entire room, save but a few holdouts, voted in favor. Whether they were for it or against it, they voted in favor of us being allowed to move on and become Global Methodist. How did that happen? Except by the movement of the Holy Spirit confounding the ways of the evil one. 
There's such a great moment on the mountaintop. We want to stay on the mountaintop. Jesus and Moses and Elijah radiant in their glory. You can't blame Peter for wanting to stick around because what he was witnessing along with James and John was spiritual gold. Peter wants the moment to never end. Let's stay a while, he says. I'm going to build houses. That's staying a while. I don't know about you, but if you're only going to be someplace for a little bit of time, you don't think about building a permanent residence. I'm going to build houses, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's dwell here on the mountaintop. This is so awesome. I never want to leave. And so I can't help but think I'm immediately transported to the revival going on in Asbury. I'm immediately reminded of all those images that I've seen, all those firsthand accounts of those who are in that place where the Holy Spirit of God has been moving in such a mighty and profound way. There was one eyewitness who said, revival is just ordinary people who are hungry for God, who are gathered for a glimpse of his face and a movement of his Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that the mountaintop experience is for ordinary people. Ordinary people like you and me called to the mountain to be witnesses to the divine movement and power of God. You see, while we as Christians are all called to the mountain. To experience God in spirit and in truth, inevitably, we are then all called from the mountain. Called to the mountain. Called from the mountain. We're called from the mountain to put this transformed God-breathed movement of the Holy Spirit into motion in the valley in the everyday world of our lives. You see, you can't stay on the mountain. The conference on the mountaintop is not the main event. Oh, it gets a lot of attention. As much as Peter would like the experience to continue, there's still work to be done and the work is not on the mountaintop. The work is down in the valley. While we are often called to the mountaintop to receive instruction, to receive inspiration, to be recharged and equipped, our true calling is always, church, in the valley. See, we're not so much called to the mountain as we are sent from the mountain. Matthew says, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and they were overcome by fear. 
But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. God says to the disciples, listen to him. Of the three persons before the disciples there on the mountaintop who were radiant in glory, God tells them, listen to Jesus. They're represented on the mountain by Moses, the law, and by Elijah, the prophets, and by Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, God says of those three, listen to Jesus. Jesus supersedes and fulfills the other two completely. Listen to Jesus from this point on. As much as the disciples would have liked to stay in the glory of the moment on the mountaintop, that mountaintop experience had to come to an end because there was work to be done in the valley. And so here we are, church, in the valley. This valley is called Splendora. There are other valleys. There's the Valley of Cleveland. There's the Valley of Shepherd. There's the big valley of Houston. The Son of Man has indeed been raised from the dead. And so Jesus' instruction to the disciples to tell no one about the transfiguration, about his divinity, well, that instruction no longer applies. Remember, he said, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Well, that has happened. And so we have a new instruction. We have a command even, a mandate. We have been commissioned. Go therefore. You know it. And make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. All that you have been taught. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to go alone. I'll be with you. That command to spread the good news to every tribe, every tongue, every nation begins right here in this holy mountaintop sanctuary. risen high above the valley of Splendora. From this mountaintop experience this very morning and every time we meet here in this holy place, from this mountaintop time on Sundays, on Wednesday nights during Bible study, we are being called to do the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community and beyond, down there in the valley where all the people live, you might call it our mission field, where we are led even 
today to tell somebody about what happens on the mountain. What happens on the mountain where the glory and divinity of the Lord are revealed to us. To the movement of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who has set up his temple in us, we are called to tell folks in the valley what that experience means, not just to us, but to them. It means that God has chosen to dwell with his people. And they too can become not just his creation, but his children. And all they have to do is accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus brings to them. How do they know of that gift? Well, they know because we come off the mountain and we make that trudge down the trail, the rocky trail back into the valley. And once we're in the valley, we lift our eyes back up to the mountain and we say, Holy Spirit, come. And we ask for guidance. We ask for God's presence. We remind Jesus that he said, I don't have to do this alone. You're going to walk with me. And we go and we spread the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the valley of Splendora. And lo and behold, people begin to turn their eyes up out of the muck and mire of the valley. And they too look up and they see there's a light on the top of the hill. It's shining bright like a fire on the mountain. It's the same fire on the mountain that the Israelites saw when Moses was up there receiving the word of God on stone tablets. The word of God, the commandments of God were not written on a whiteboard in erasable marker. They were carved into stone so that we would have a tangible baseline for what is required of us to be holy and righteous. Granted, there's no way we could ever live up to all of those Ten Commandments. God knew that when he etched them into stone. But that doesn't disqualify them when Jesus came, he came and he fulfilled all of them. And then we had this new commandment. Love God. Love people. It's easier to keep those two than it is all ten. Love God. Love people. If you love Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's fulfilled the ten all you have to do is keep the two. Through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And so you've been on the mountain for a time and now you are being sent from it. 
Go into the valley and share what Jesus has done for you. Share the mountaintop experience as it has become real in your life. And invite people to elevate their gaze out of the valley to the burning fire of the Holy Spirit that resides on the mountain. Glory be to God in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.